Among all the problems that Paul had to deal with among the Corinthians, and there were many, this is, at the end of the letter, perhaps the most dangerous problem. The Corinthians were being taught by some that Christ had not risen from the dead. This is a gospel-destroying heresy, as we'll see. And Paul comes, barrels blazing, to destroy this gospel-destroying heresy. But in, in doing so, as I hope we'll see today, in sort of a surprising way, Paul makes one of the boldest and most shockingly reassuring and hope-giving gospel promises that you will ever see in the scriptures. So may the Lord open our eyes and hearts to see that. This is the word of the Lord. For, for I delivered to you, starting in 1 Corinthians 15, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. And you are still in your sins. Let's pray. Lord, please protect your word this morning. And please reveal your word. And please, Lord, execute your word to do all that you desire for it to accomplish in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Paul needs to remind this church that there is a resurrection from the dead, that they will be raised. But he doesn't start there. He starts with Christ. 
He starts with the gospel. See, in verse 1, Paul says, I need to remind you, you believers who have already heard and received, that we are standing on the gospel. And this is a reminder from Paul that we all need reminding, by the way. So he reminds them about a person who they've met, who they've experienced, who they've put their faith in. He reminds them, he says, of the person who died for them and rose for them and who they had put their hope in for forgiveness. And he says in verses 3 and 4 that this all happened according to the scriptures. Jesus coming and dying, Paul says, is not something that occurred out of the blue in some redemptive whim in God's mind. Oh, let me do this. I got an idea. I'll send my son. Paul is saying in bringing Jesus to earth and making the destiny of all who ever live contingent upon what they do with the question, who is Jesus Christ? God was not rashly asking us to put blind faith in an idea that came out of thin air. No, Christ's coming was according to the scriptures. God sowed into human history for centuries and millennia to make us ready to understand that there was integrity to this work he was doing in Christ. Christ's coming was the fulfillment of thousands of years of messianic prophecy. Hopefully many of you are familiar. We, we spent a long time this winter in this, but I'll remind you again, Christ's coming was the fulfillment, according to the scriptures, of passages like Micah 5 that foretell that he will be born in, Jerusalem, in Bethlehem. Prophecies like Daniel 9 that foretold when he would come to his people, possibly to the exact day and year. Prophecies like Psalm 22 that foretold a thousand years ahead of time his torturous treatment, his crucifixion, the mocking of witnesses, the soldiers who cast lot for his clothing and his death at the hands of merciless men. Prophecies like Psalm 110 where King David the very height of human authority in Israel. King David sees a vision of another king talking to God, a king above him. And this king will become both priest and king, something that was unlawful in Israel. And yet David foresaw the new covenant and the new priest and the new, the new establishment of a priest-king. Prophecies like Isaiah 53 that hopefully you know so well, which cry out 700 years before Jesus ever took a breath. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging, we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray, each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Again, some 700 years before Jesus ever took a breath, Isaiah sees the resurrection of Christ when he says, though Yahweh makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand after he has suffered. He will see the light of life and be satisfied. And God did more. The entire old covenant with its centuries 
long sacrificial system of blood sacrifices offered again and again by the high priest for the sins of all the people before the presence of God proclaimed for millennia to Israel that without blood there can be no forgiveness of sin. So that when John the Baptist sees Jesus coming and he says, Behold, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The Jewish people had centuries of unblemished offerings offered for sin written into their cultural DNA to understand what John was saying. And so Paul says, as Jesus himself said, Jesus came, did what he did according to the scriptures, in conformance to, in keeping with the authority of God's word that he has been proclaiming to us for thousands of years. This Jesus died and rose again. This, Paul says, is what you are taking your stand on in verse 1. You're standing on this truth, Paul says, and this truth that you're standing on saves you if, verse 2, you hold fast to it. If you walk away from it, if it just becomes an empty idea that seemed nice for a while, but now you've moved on. If you're not wrestling with your doubts like all Christians do, no, if you've coldly let it go and have now come to call it superstition and naive folklore, or perhaps you've come to now see it as a tool of oppressive religion and a God who's too exclusive and narrow for the world as it is, or you've decided, perhaps, that a Christ, a sacrifice is not needed for you. You will stand on your own record, and God, whatever he is, will receive you apart from a sacrifice of his son for your sins. That's too barbaric. That's too primal. And you're just human anyway. You don't need this Jesus Christ. You're a decent person. If you don't hold on to this gospel as, as beautiful and true and your treasure, fighting for it, struggling for it, but if Paul says if you've come to call it an old, worn-out idea whose time has come and gone, then Paul says you believed in vain. Your faith was empty of the Holy Spirit. And so Paul pleads, don't do that. Don't give up on Christ as your sin-bearer. Don't give up on him as your only righteousness before God. This is, I think, as certainly as hard as I can imagine it was for the Corinthians. It's as hard as it is for us in our culture today. But God pleads with us. We cannot take God as we like. We must take him as he is. For he is God. And we are not. And he has spoken to the world of his terms. And his terms are not liable to our terms. He has given us his word on who he is. And he's not accountable to us to be who we want or who we wish him to be. And what has he said to us? What are his terms? He has said, you must come to me through my son's blood, depending on my son's offering for your sins, hoping in my acceptance because of my son's sacrifice on your behalf, or you will not come to me. So God pleads through Paul, hold fast to the gospel of my precious son, 
forgiven for your sin. Fight to depend on him. Trust in him. To let him be your sin bearer. To let him be your only righteousness. Or you will have neither a sin bearer nor righteousness in his sight. For as the scripture says, there is no other name in heaven or on earth by which we can be saved. When you think of what the Christian life is, like what comes to mind? If someone says, what's it mean to be a Christian? Would you say it's a life of love for God and others? A life of witnessing to the world about Jesus. A life of faithfulness to Jesus. A life saying no to sin and yes to righteousness. A life lived for the glory of God. It's all these things. It includes all these things. But if you had to choose one thing as of first importance, as Paul says in verse 1, something you could say, this is of first importance when we're defining a Christian's life. I submit to you, based on the authority of God's word, that if you asked Paul, he would say, well, of first importance is a life of not letting go of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Of all the things that define a Christian, of first importance above them all is a life of not letting go of the grace of God, the mercy of God. In Jesus Christ. There are many things that we want and should come from a life depending on God's grace. The fruits of the Holy Spirit, repentance, ongoing confession of sin, good works, loving one another, fighting for moral and ethical purity. These are all good things that should come from our lives as believers. But they are impossible. They are powerless. They are meaningless without this one thing, without holding on to what is of first importance. So hold fast, Paul says. We don't use this term too much anymore. It just means hold firmly. Don't let go. Many days you will be struggling to keep your grip on him. On better days, you may be rejoicing and resting in him. But whatever it means, it simply means don't give up on this gospel. Don't give up on this hope you have come to possess in Jesus, that he is our savior. He is our sin bearer. He's not only your parents' sin bearer or that great Christian you knew in high school or the friend you look up to. He's not just their sin bearer. No, he bore our sins, your sins. Martin Luther meditates on this tiny word, our he says, pronouns mean so much. He says, consider carefully every word of Paul and especially note the pronoun our. You will easily believe that Christ, the Son of God, was given for the sins of Peter and Paul and other saints whom we judge worthy of this grace. But we judge ourselves unworthy of this grace and it is very hard to believe with our heart that Christ was given for our infinite and horrible sins. It is easy in general and without the pronoun to say how great was the benefit of Christ that he was given for sins, but for other people's sins, worthy people's sins. 
But when it comes to this pronoun, our, our weak nature, he says, and our reason recoil and dare not to receive this promise or come near to God, that so great a treasure would be freely given to us. And therefore, we will have nothing to do with God unless we are pure and sinless first. And therefore, although we read the words, who gave himself for our sins, we do not apply the pronoun our to ourselves, really, but to others whom we deem worthy and holy. For ourselves, we will wait until we are made worthy by our works. And Luther puts a painful spotlight on a paradox here. This idea that goes on in the human heart that we can both think ourselves unworthy of Christ and yet worthy in ourselves. He says, human reason wants to present to God not a real sinner, but a pretend one. It wants to bring to God one who is well, not one who needs a physician. And when it feels no sin, then it wants to believe. When it feels no sin, then it wants to believe that Christ was given for our sins. But Christ was given up to death, not for our righteousness or holiness, but for our sins, which are true sins, great ones, infinitely many and invincible. So do not think they are small and such as may be gotten rid of by your own work. And do not despair because of their greatness if you feel oppressed by them, either in life or in death. Rather, learn from Paul to believe that Christ was given, not for pretend sins, no for small sins, but for great and huge sins, not for one or two, but for all of them, not for vanquished sins, that is, sins you've already overcome, but for invincible sins. And if you are not among those who say our sins, that is, who have this doctrine of faith and teach and hear and learn and love and believe the same. There is no salvation for you. And so Luther says what Paul says, this is our greatest call to hold fast to that which is of first importance. To hold firmly to what Paul says is of first importance in the face of a world and a flesh and a devil calling us to deny it. He was given over for our sins, and raised for us. He not only died for you, but he was raised. And in this case, Paul explains there are 500 people who saw this. And it's very possible this included those who were known in Corinth. And Paul explains who they were. And then at the end, he lifts himself, explaining as he does that his whole life is simply a testament to the risen Christ living in him and working through him. He says, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether it was then I or they, so we preach and you believed. Luther, or Paul takes just a brief moment to as he often does, just grapple with his own heart and be real about himself. And this is worthy of its own message. But, but today I want us to see something important 
for our life as a church family. Seeing Christ in his resurrection is a qualification in scriptures for being an apostle. Seeing Christ raised from the dead, seeing him with your eyes is a qualification for being an apostle. It did not make you an apostle. There were others who had seen Jesus. But Jesus only appointed apostles. That is, his chief authoritative ambassadors. He only appointed them out of men who had actually seen him in the flesh. And Paul, he says, lastly, was visited by the risen Christ after all the apostles were already appointed. But I say this because it bears repeating. The apostles and their teaching is our authority. It is their message that Jesus Christ said in John 17 would be the message that all people after them would believe unto salvation. That's why today we preach from this book of 1 Corinthians and Paul's words, not simply my ideas or our wisdom or our vision. All those things need to be submitted to the apostolic witness. And may we ever be faithful and centered on God's word as a church family. Getting back to the point here, Paul is adamant that they hold fast to this message of Christ's death and resurrection. And he says something so shocking and encouraging and assuring and yet brief. It's almost buried and we can miss it here. Just try to follow me for a moment. Listen carefully. Paul is explaining the futility and doom of his ministry and their lives if there is no resurrection from the dead. Follow his reasoning. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there's no resurrection from the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And here's one of the most shockingly hopeful sentences in scripture. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Are you encouraged? <laughs> Did you see that shocking grace? I know it drove by at 90 miles per hour to some of us, but let's slow it down. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. If Christ has not been raised, you are still in your sins. In other words, if Christ has not been raised, then he has not paid for your sins. How can you say that your sins are paid for if Christ still lives, still lays, condemned in the ground? Which is the whole point of death. But if Christ has risen, then not only has he shown his victory over death, but because death is a penalty for sin. If he is no longer dead, then he has shown 
that his payment for our sins is accepted. It is finished. And he is no longer paying for your sins. We're going to talk a lot more about the resurrection of Christ and our resurrection. It means more than this, but it doesn't mean less than this. His rising was, in one crucial aspect, a receipt, an official stamp of approval that his payment for sins was received, approved, accepted, and finished, and that God was and is satisfied with Christ's death for us, and it no longer has any claim on our sins. Jesus rises saying, I am done paying for all of your sins. As true as it is that death is the wage of your sin, then since I am done with death on your behalf, those wages are paid. And therefore, you must all rise too. This is so important that you follow the logic of this. Lord, please help us see this and not just see it with our minds, but with our hearts. Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, then you are still in your sins. But of course, Jesus Christ has been raised and therefore you who hope in him are not still in your sins. Theologians Chiampa and Rosner in their commentary in 1 Corinthians put it this way. The clear implication, the clear implication is that since Christ has been raised, Christian faith is not futile but effective, and believers no longer stand under God's judgment for their sins, but have been forgiven, justified, and set free from their sins. This is another way of what we've been saying the last two weeks. Christ has finished with all of your sins, past, present, and future. Ephesians 1, 7, we have forgiveness. Not we will have or might have or had had. We have and still have and will go on having in Christ the forgiveness of our sins. Colossians 2.14 from two weeks ago. He forgave us all. He forgave us all our sins. Having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Paul is saying, Corinthians, you are not still in your sins. And here is why this is such incredibly overwhelming, mind-blowing grace. Think about the context of this letter and this church. This is a church that is struggling with tremendous arrogance and divisiveness. They are idolizing religious leaders. They're significantly rebuked for that. This is a church that is taking one another to court. 
small claims court, petty offenses. This is a church that's getting drunk at communion feasts and being selfish with their goods. This is a church that's allowing really egregious sin to continue in their midst without the right kind of church discipline. These are serious things. Paul doesn't sweep them under the rug. He says, these are serious things. You guys got to deal with this stuff. This is a church now that is being tempted to doubt the resurrection. This is a church that Paul flat out says in this very chapter, in a few verses, come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning. To this church, Paul says, in effect, since Christ has been raised, you are no longer in your sins. Stop sinning because you're no longer condemned for your sins. You're no longer in them. God has forgiven them. He's not counting them against you. Christ has paid for them all. You are now accounted as righteous before God in Christ. And in light of this, because of this amazing grace, of course, from this place of God's favor over you, astonishing love for you, commitment to you, and through the Holy Spirit, power and life in you, put to death these things. Fight against them. So today, what, what I want to say to you who are fighting to hold on to Jesus, who see your shortcomings and they're severe, who, who understand your struggle to be faithful to God, to put off laziness and lust and anger and arrogance and pettiness and indifference and coldness and selfishness and inconsistency, all the things that you see, I want to say to you, you are not in your sins. You are forgiven even as you struggle like the Corinthian struggles are present and real. You are a forgiven people. You have a righteousness in Christ given to you as a gift that you can't destroy. And so, yes, fight against all those things that fight against your soul, but not to make God forgive you, but because he already has. Not to become righteous, but because he has already declared you righteous. Fight against those sins as sins that have been covered and paid for and forgiven. Go against your inner intuition that that's, not honoring God. No, you've got to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and clean yourself up and then you can come to God. God says, no, that doesn't honor me. That's the opposite of honoring me. My son's blood is what I'm looking for and what, what when you put your hope in his strength and his purity and the sufficiency of his sacrifice, that's what honors me. So fight against those sins. With bold faith. The risky kind of faith that says, Lord, this is hard. I'm still struggling. But in Christ, I am not 
in my sins. And to anyone here who in your heart, as I read these words, they seem impossible for you, foreign to you, you're cold to them, they seem cold to you, who feels that they've never known Jesus Christ. I say this. He stands ready to receive you if you will have him as your sin bearer. If you will, by his grace, see your need, admit your need, and let him bear your need. If you will have him as your savior, he will save you. Don't wait to make yourself ready for God. You will never be ready for God. That is why you need Jesus. That is why he had to die for your sins. Come, he says. Stop running from your creator. Stop refusing the one you were made for. Give up stiff-arming the one who gave himself for you. If you will have him, God the Father offers himself to you and offers his son for your sins. God the Father offers his Holy Spirit to you to come into your life to give you the power to follow him that you've never had before. Come and hold fast to Jesus in this gospel. Given over to death to pay for all of your sins and raised to announce that forgiveness and freedom are given fully and finally to all who will believe. Let's pray.